I read a story in a British magazine and uh, published a story about a man who had the most unusual profession. And it's not the profession itself that's the unusual, but the method that he employed to accomplish his job is the most unusual one. Let me read it so I don't mess it up. Andy was a human stench bomb, but he loved it because this is how he earned his living. Andy, a bill collector for a London magazine. The magazine management sends him to the delinquent account clients who advertised with the magazine, but they did not pay their bills, pay their debt. Andy came dressed in a 22-year-old raincoat that was covered with the most horrible-smelling substance. Andy plunked himself down at the reception room or the office of the debtor and refused to budge without the payment. He and his raincoat generated such a vile smell that is compared favorably to a skunk or rotten eggs. In fact, he smelled so bad that the secretaries and the clients in the business gasped for air and they flee out of the room. In just about all cases, Andy leaves with the payment in his hands. <laughs> I would say <laughs> you would pay him just to get rid of him. Debt collection has become a national industry. Why? Because debt is a national problem. Many people refuse to live within their means. Many people get themselves into such debt that it's impossible to come from under it. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't borrow money to, for a house or for a car or for business. That's not what it's all about here. As long as the debt is manageable, but in Romans 13, 8, when the Apostle Paul said, let no debt remain outstanding, is not meaning that we should never borrow or come into debt, but he's talking about incurring a debt that can never be repaid. I want to remind you of the context of Romans 12 and 13. In Romans 12, we saw the Apostle Paul saying that a genuine Bible-believing Christian is a person who exhibits the love of Christ that has been poured into his and her heart. And we saw eight different expressions of genuine love. Let me remind you, love hates evil. Love gives honor. Love is passionate about God. Love hopes and perseveres in prayer. Love loves to give. Love feels deeply with others. Love refuses to get even, and love reverses the cultural norms. Now, he immediately moves from this to Romans 13 and is really continuing that same theme, whether you know it or not, whether you noticed it or not. He's continuing with that same theme, the genuine love theme. And he says, genuine love on part of the believer is going to make him or her willingly obey the law of the land and pay their taxes. And secondly, love for God makes us pay our debts 
Why? Because genuine love fulfills the law and redeems the time. Look at verses 1 to 7. Paul, he was living under the most horrendous, horrendous dictatorship of his day. It was the most vile dictatorship. He is saying that part of the believer's witness is to obey the law of the land and pay taxes. Jesus, in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, He said, "'Give to Caesars what belongs to Caesar.'" That's the taxes. "'And give to God what belongs to God.'" So, here we see that love, genuine love for God, obeys the law of the land. In fact, the only time it was permissible for the first-century believers, the first church, the only time it was permissible for them to disobey the law of the land and to disobey the government is when Caesar demanded worship. At that point, they said, no, God above Caesar, and they were willing to pay the consequences. Verses 1 to 7, Romans 13 tells us that we are basically foreigners in this land. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a foreigner. You are the citizen of where? You see, we are representing our home country here on earth. Listen to me, beloved. Here's my understanding. Had Paul lived in Western democracy, he would have said the following. Do you understand what privileged people you are? Do you understand that God gave you a unique opportunity to put people in power? Do you comprehend what an exquisite responsibility to have to be able to choose your government. Therefore, don't squander it. Therefore, don't take it for granted. And therefore, don't abuse it by not getting involved. Can I get a witness? Now, I personally believe it is a sin not to vote. It is a sin not to participate in one of the greatest privileges that God gave us as citizens in this democracy. Study the candidates. Find out where they stand. Ask them questions, and then vote intelligently. Having grown up under horrible dictatorship, where election, you have one candidate in office. It's a referendum. And you vote either for this dictator, you can say yes or no. And if you voted no, these people are watching you, and they're going to follow you, and they're going to harass you, and they'll make your life miserable. So, consequently, the results have always been 99.9%. That's what happens in dictatorship. Now, having said that, listen to me, I must hasten to say that we must vote for godly people who espouse godly policies. And yet, our hope must never be placed on politicians. Our confidence must never be placed on those who are in power. Our total trust must never be in a man, any man. But our complete confidence, trust, and hope must be placed on our King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take your eyes off Jesus and place them on the government, I can tell you, you will be discouraged and you'll be disappointed. 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm tempted. <laughs> when is the last time you prayed for the leaders of our country? Oh, listen, I've read the other day that just before election time, every single prayer meeting around the nation is packed. Two weeks later, not so much. Everybody gone back to business as usual. Please listen to me. Don't ever forget that the founding fathers of this great country, the United States, have received direct answer to their prayer when they humbled themselves and they prayed. God heard them, and God answered them in their deliberation. I'll give you one example only. In the Constitutional Convention of 1787, which was called to revise the existing Articles of Confederation, these men met for weeks, not for the hours, not for days, for weeks. These delegates have searched and debated and examined all of sorts of models of governments around the world, and which one, how we can modify it, which would work out best for us. But after every debate, they ended up with frustration, and they ended up with disappointment. That's until Benjamin Franklin got up, and he began to speak regarding the lack of progress. And here's what he said. I'm quoting word for word. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought to humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? And then they prayed, and God answered, and He gave them what they formed what is called a perfect union. Now, don't tell me that God did not answer them when He gave them the Constitution of the United States of America, the most enlightened document that any nation ever hoped to have. Why do you think so many people who hate this country want to shred the Constitution? Why do you think godless forces now coming out in the media and in politics, and they make fun and they mock godly leaders for their outstanding godliness and moral leadership. Listen to me. The heat of this battle must drive us first to our knees and then give us the boldness to stand with good and godly leaders. Can I get an amen? amen. Genuine love always obeys the law of the land. Genuine love must only be indebted. Oh, indebtedness. He said indebtedness is not good, but here's an indebtedness that is really good. <laughs> indebtedness to God and to others. I'm going to make a statement. I know it's going to startle some of you. Listen carefully. A genuine Bible-believing Christian lives in a state of perpetual spiritual indebtedness. A genuine Bible-believing Christian lives in perpetual spiritual indebtedness. I'm going to explain that. What is that indebtedness? It's an indebtedness to God. It's an indebtedness to God. And it prompts us to love Him with all of our hearts and keep on loving Him and then, as His love keeps pouring into us, we love our neighbors as ourselves. But if you try to pay this debt yourself—listen to me, I've tried it and failed miserably. 
If you say, I am going to love God with all my I am going to do this, and I'm going to do this, you will only make few payments, and then you become bankrupt. Now, in the financial world, there are some who work long and hard just to make debt payment. Some pay the only minimum payment on their credit cards and to the point where it becomes impossible to pay their debt. But when it comes to our debt to God, when it comes to our debt to the Lord Jesus Christ and our debt to loving others, only God can give you the resources by which you can pay that debt to God. Isn't that amazing? He pours His resources into us. He loves through us so that we can love others. And here it is. The more you love God and others, the more God pours it into you. And the more He pours it into you, the more you pay it. The more He pours it into you, the more you pay it. In fact, here's a biblical principle that thousands of you know it, I know, around the world even. The more you pay this debt, the more you exercise love toward God, the more you ask God to love through you, the more you love your neighbors, the more you love your friends, the more you love even your enemies, the more love that God is going to pour into you. It's like a silo. The more you take wheat or grain from that silo, the more God pours it from the top. The moment you think that you can pay that debt yourself, that you can love God with your own strength, without His help without His pouring His love into you on a regular basis, on a daily basis, trust me, the picture is not very pretty, because at that moment, love will become less authentic. It will be fake. We see it all over the place. See the definition of the world's love. You know, people talk about love. When you discover love, you're going to be power. Here's the problem that I've seen in the years, through the years. There are some who confuse people-pleasing with genuine, authentic, biblical love. People-pleasers knock themselves out to please others. You see it in preachers. You see it in, in ministries even. You see it where they're knocking themselves out to please people. They just want to make them happy. They want to, make, they want to please them. <laughs> Why? Because they want to receive their applause. Uh, They do it because they want to gain praise of people. But godly love is different because it is not emotional surface type of love. Godly love loves to serve without recognition. Godly love loves to exhort and warn. Godly love is willing to risk misunderstanding, being misunderstood. Godly love is always telling the truth. Even when you know the person doesn't want to hear it, godly love is fearless of criticism because godly love has only one source of strength, and that's God the Holy Spirit. And when you are constantly receiving a continuous supply of love from the Lord that is poured into you, when you allow God to love through you, when you are constantly opening yourself up to the pouring out of the love of the Holy Spirit in your life, You will never ask foolish questions like, are the Ten Commandments relevant for today, or only for the Old Testament? You'll never ask a foolish question like that. You'll never ask, am I supposed to believe the Ten Commandments now that I live in the New Testament, or should I ditch them? You'll never ask such questions. 
those who ask that question, whether the Ten Commandments are relevant or not today, they are preaching an old heresy that has been around for hundreds of years. Every now and again in every generation, you find somebody who's clever who discovered that heresy and preaches it, and everybody says, whoa, that's not wonderful. That's smart. Good thinking. Uh, Nothing new under the sun. Look at verse 10 of Romans 13. The love of God that is poured into our hearts will empower us to live. You notice I said not obey, but to live the Ten Commandments. Not perfectly, because only one kept them all perfectly. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is irrelevant to ask, can I keep the Ten Commandments? Are the Ten Commandments relevant or not? Listen to what Jeremiah said. When Jeremiah prophesied about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when that day come, he said, I will write my commandments on their hearts. They're not just going to memorize them and mimic them, just like the Pharisees of old. It's going to be written on their hearts. So they want to ask those silly questions, whether I should obey them or not, because you're living them. When you love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, you are living the Ten Commandments. I want to show you from the Word of God. When the love of God is poured into you, and you love Him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, when you do that, you are not going to go out willy-nilly breaking the first five commandments. When you love God with all your heart, listen to me, you're not going to try to worship other gods, all these dead gods. You're not going to do that. You're not going to keep idols in your life and place them above the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed you with His blood. You're not going to misuse or abuse the name of the Lord. I love the name of the Lord. I proclaim the name of the Lord. As well as say, hallowed be thy name is the first sentence after our Father. You're not going to abuse or misuse. You will take a day of re- the day in which you focus on God. You're not going to dishonor the Sabbath. That's the day of worship. And you will honor your father and mother. Of course you will. See, you're living them. But then, as God's love pours into you, He will enable you. As He fills you to overflowing, He'll enable you to love even the unlovable. When the love of God is going through you, when He's loving them through you, and as a result, you're going to keep the second five commandments. You're not going to, oh, I've got to keep this one, I've got to keep that one. Now you're living it. You're not going to go around coveting people's things. You're like, you say, well, you know, Ten Commandments, well, uh, we don't have donkeys. We, we don't covet donkeys. Well, sure, that was a possession at the time. You covered somebody's wife or somebody's husband or somebody's possession, somebody's blessing that God gave them. You love God. You will love what God loves. When you love God, you're going to want to please God. When you love God, you want what God wants. And at that point, when that is taking place, you're not going to be asking or even thinking, are the Ten Commandments relevant for today? Should we ditch the Ten Commandments now? This is people-pleasing. This is not biblical truth. Because living and loving your neighbor as yourself. You see, love fulfills all the commandments. It completes the commandments. Just like Jeremiah said, it's written on our hearts. We live them. Now, as you look in the next couple of verses, and before I start into them, I want to confess to you 
those who are close to me, my family know this, I've always had a sense of urgency in my life. I cannot explain it. Why is that sense of urgency? Ever since I was a boy, since I came to Christ, there's a sense of urgency in my life. I always felt that time is a precious commodity, not to be wasted and not to be squandered. That is why you will understand when I tell you that I can truly identify with Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. I truly identify with these two verses. As I said, I always had this sense of urgency, and it's inexplicable. Many times, this sense of urgency has caused me to be less patient than I should have been. I know that. I'm not proud of that. That sense of urgency, I wanting to conform to the character of Christ, that sense of urgency wanted me to reflect obedience to Christ. And, and sometimes I went about it in, in a hurried way, in a wrong way, but I always had been as urgent in, in loving and seeking the lost. That's always been a burden of my heart. I've always been an urgent in encouraging and exalting believers to live a holy life and to conform to the image of Christ. I've always been urgent in redeeming the moments and the opportunities that God has given me. The day when the late Ben Hayden walked into my office, literally said, I'm on my way and I'm coming from Chattanooga, and walked in there, and he just plunked himself on the table and he said, God told me to give you my television ministry. My wife and I have been talking for years. I'll never be on television. This redhead over here, actually, let me tell you what she said. You'll be on television over my dead body. <laughs> and when I said this to Ben, he said, well, that's your problem. Goodbye. And he left. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't about being television. It's an opportunity. That's the opportunity God provided. And I wanted to know if God is in it, I want to obey it. Sadly, we live in a time when Christians have lost this sense of urgency. Now, the word time here, redeeming the time, is not talking about chronological time. That's not what word means. The word means a period of time. Your time, your time, your time, my time. This period of time in which we live, these opportunities that God presents to us that are so uniquely to each individual. That's what the word time here means. Each of us must understand our time and redeem the time, and redeem the opportunities that God presents to us in this time. Each of us must comprehend the uniqueness of the time and the opportunities in our lives that God presents us with. Each of us must seize the uniqueness of the time and the opportunities that He presents you. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. That's always a verse that sticks in my spirit. It says, the men of Essekah, that's one of the tribes of Israel, the men of Essekah understood the times. They understood the opportunities. They understood the moment that God presents us as so uniquely for that period of time and that period of life in our lives. Sadly, the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day they did not understand the times and the privileged times in which they lived, which they seeing the Son of God with their own eyes. They did not understand the times. They did not comprehend the awesomeness of God's presence in their midst. They did not redeem the time and receive Jesus as their Messiah. They did not comprehend the times of the 
redemption that God has talked about in every book of the Old Testament. And they remained in their spiritual blindness. Now, beloved, listen to me. For a period of time, God will speak to you. And I'm talking about every one of you, young or old, doesn't matter. For a period of time, God will speak to you. For a period of time, God is going to pursue you. For a period of time, God will present you with certain opportunities with your name written all over it. It's not for your neighbor. It's not for your friend. It's not for your brother or sister. It's for you. For a period of time, God will be calling upon you. For a period of time, God will open some doors just for you that no one can shut. But if you persist, here's the warning, if you persist on going in your happy, merry way, that door is going to shut. That voice is going to be so faint that you will not be able to hear it. It will be a whisper, and you're no longer hearing the voice of God. And beloved, those opportunities will cease to exist. I've never made a secret of the fact that the cry of my heart, and it's a singular cry, is that I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. I want to take as many people to heaven. And then this is partly why when Ben Hayden came and said, God told me to give you one, I said, Lord, maybe this is the opportunity. It is. I never dreamed that the kingdom sat will be in 160 million homes in the Arab world. I did not know that at that moment, but our God honored the desire, I want to take as many people to heaven with me as He allows me to. That's the longing of my heart. Hear me right, please. There are a lot of good things that needs to be done, a lot of good deeds that can be done, but none more important in my life than the great commission of Jesus Christ. It is my daily cry to God to give me men and women, boys and girls, who discern the times we live in. It is the cry of my heart that God will give me men and women who are willing to redeem the times in which we live, men and women who recognize the urgency for salvation and the opportunities for reaching the lost, men and women who walk with me through these open doors. Somebody wrote and said, you know, America has its clubs, has its unions, has its private groups, and people join them. But one of the lesser known is called the Procrastination Club. Have you heard of it? The requirement for membership is coming late to the meetings. A recent release from the Procrastination Club indicated, once again, that the announced predictions by their members have come true, all of them because the forecasts always come in late after the fact. <laughs> in fact, this club boasts of having 500,000 members, but being procrastinators, most of them haven't joined yet. <laughs> Please don't be one of them. Please don't be one of them. You know, and I know, there are people who are forever waiting for better time. They're waiting for a clearer sign from God. They're waiting for a better day. They're waiting for more opportune time, which never comes. Verse 11, Romans 13, it is time to wake up from the sleep. The night has almost gone, and the day is at hand. 
The day of your meeting the Lord Jesus Christ in the cloud could be today. The clouds will be the moment you either go see Jesus or Jesus comes to meet all of us. It doesn't matter. The day is going to come sooner or later. And the more you're prepared, the better off you are. It could be today that some of you will go to heaven. It could be today that Jesus comes back from heaven. Either way, how should you live? And what would you say to Him when you see Him face to face? What are you going to say to Him? Are you going to say, Lord, I just didn't get around to doing what you asked me to do. Lord, you know my intentions were good. Lord, I I got so busy with life that I didn't get around witnessing to others. Have you ever seen people who are physically fully awake, but they're really asleep? In the animal kingdom, that is normal. In fact, I'm told that horses can nap and sleep while they're standing. Hippopotamus, who sleeps as he floats in the water. Or like the bats that nap hanging by their feet. The Bible tells us spiritual drowsiness will rule supreme just prior to the return of the Lord. Think about this. Think about this. Judging from what I'm seeing, I think Jesus' return must be really close. The Bible said that the signs of spiritual sleepness are as follows. The love of many will grow cold. People won't be able to stand hearing the truth, and they will run after people who tickle their ear. They're not going to want to hear the truth, because the truth convicts, and they don't want to be convicted. Turning away from biblical truth will be rampant and fashionable at the end times. Getting so bogged down with world affairs, many will become spiritually numb. Here are the symptoms of spiritual sleep. Listen carefully. Living for self, self-indulgence, spiritual drunkenness with the world's wine, little concern of what concerns the Lord dividing and creating doubt in believers' lives, and sowing the seed of discontent, uh, uh, loving in words only that have no depths, paying lip service to God, and presuming upon His grace. Beloved, these are the deeds of darkness. These are the deeds of darkness. Remember, you belong to the day. Shake off the nighttime and the night's sleep. You belong to the light. Shake off the nightlife. You belong to watching and waiting. So open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Do this with me. This is a sign opening up to your Holy Spirit. Come on. Say, I'm opening up to your Holy Spirit. Come. He will come. Don't be surprised. The time is urgent. The word put on here says, put on Christ. It's like you got up this morning and you put on it. Clothes, dress, suit, whatever you put on. And when you put on your clothes, when you go outside, wherever you go, your clothes go with you, right? I mean, I don't leave my clothes over there. They go with me. Wherever I walk, my clothes go with me. Whenever I drive, my clothes are driving with me. Wherever I am, my clothes go with me. 
That's what he means by putting on Christ, because Christ is with you. Wherever you go, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever situation, whatever temptation you face, wherever you go, put on Christ. That's what he really means here. Beloved, the day is drawing near, faster and sooner than many of us think. When the clouds (laughs) will roll like a scroll— and the trumpet will sound, and the shout of the archangel, and then our Lord, beloved Jesus, will appear in person. The day is coming, and it may be nearer than we think. Let me tell you this as I conclude. There was a fishing village, and was renowned for serving as a lighthouse because a lot of rocks around the shore, and was a safe harbor despite of the fact it's dangerous. When ships break on the rocks, at nighttime particularly, the village was renowned for their rescuing spirit and immediately run out to rescue people. When the siren sounded, a group of men would immediately rush out to the scene of the accident, and through the years they have rescued hundreds and hundreds of people. After several years of dedication and alertness, the village managed to raise some money. Yeah, money can be wonderful, but sometimes if you don't use it as a blessing, it can become a curse. After several years of dedication, they managed to raise enough money to build a rescuing station to enhance their operation. Oh, what could be more Needed, right? A little time later, they sent some people to a training program, so they'll be trained on how to do it better and faster. As time went on, they added some comforts and conveniences and amenities to that building. Then they finished it with a lounge and a kitchen and a bar and sleeping quarters. Finally, it became a club where the town people came and gathered and relaxed. The alarm still sounded, but nobody responded. They were reluctant to leave their comfortable circumstances and surroundings. People would drown off the shore, but no one seemed to notice. Beloved, This is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ around the world as I see it. There are some pockets in Indonesia and the Middle East in certain parts, but generally speaking, this is a picture of the church. May God forbid that this happens to this church. Beloved, these are urgent days, the most urgent in my lifetime. The war is no longer politely fought behind the scenes like it used to be many years ago. Not, not anymore. The enemies is now out in the open. they got their sword drawn, and they're ready. This is a time for us to go not into a spiritual sleep, but alertness, redeeming the time, redeeming the time. Say it with me. Lord God, I don't presume on you, and I only pray that I've only opened your Word and taught what's in your Word. 
Anything that I said that is not of you, make your people forget it. But everything that I said that is directly from your word, let it haunt every ears, every mind, every heart, until we all shake off the sleep of the night and become awake and aware of the shortness of time. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.